0: Welcome to Afternoon at the Museum. IRA presents the Tuskegee Airmen National Site, and this is the virtual exhibit. I'm Janine Stanley, and I am your IRA Explorer Community Manager. I'm joined in the background today, running all of our technical uh, equipment, is Mr. Ryan Bishop. Thank you, Ryan.
1: Hello, everyone, and I'm so excited for today.
0: Yeah, this is going to be a great one today. We also have our host, Stephanie Watts. Hello, Stephanie.
2: Hello, Janine and Ryan.
0: We are are joined. Yeah, we are joined today by Agent Wendell Hennessy. Hello, Wendell.
3: Hi, everybody.
0: Many, many people know Wendell. Now, I'm just going to give a few... um, seconds here of intro our afternoon at the museum project is one that we are sponsoring based on our outreach and awareness to increase participation within the ira community but also to help people become aware of the Black Lives Matter movement, of all of the things that we are facing now, through the museum experience, and these are the museums in the Association of African American Museums, and you can find them at blackmuseum, I'm sorry, blackmuseumsplural.org. And through the end of 2020, Ira Explorers can actually review this content with our agents uh, free making that available. And today, you're going to find out just what it's like to do this free with an agent. Now, the Tuskegee Airmen Museum is not part of that particular offer. This specific museum is part of the National Park System. But we chose it today of all days because, of course, today is September 11th, and we're marking the 19th anniversary of the attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the other plane that also went down in Pennsylvania on that fateful day. And we hope that everyone will take some time today to remember. But what we really wanted to focus on today was bravery and patriotism in the face of just what would seem to be unsurmountable odds. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Stephanie and Wendell and Afternoon at the Museum.
2: Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you again to the IRA team, Janine, Ryan, and of course, Wendell, Agent Wendell. Um, I am an IRA explorer, I use a service uh, and Of course, that's how I got an opportunity to do this. And so, what I would like to uh, give you is I think of it as a view through my eyes as my eyes are through Wendell. And so, in choosing this particular museum, we're going to um, proceed as though I had placed a call to Ira through the Ira app on my phone. And Wendell, uh, as the agent, has answered the call. And so I will, um, I will begin by walking through. And again, greeting you, Wendell. Thank you so much for um, being here today. Um, I I know we have a couple hangers. I, I have just a little snippet of knowledge about the Tuskegee Airmen Museum. Um, but maybe we could just start with you giving me Something of an overview so we can really um, determine how best to how best to proceed.
3: Absolutely. Well you are in luck because this is one of my favorite subjects. Um, so we're gonna start basically with the location. Uh Moton Field was actually where the Tuskegee Airmen did their initial training. Um this was only one of two places they 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 trained. They trained in Moton Field here just north of Tuskegee. Um and I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen for those who might be sighted joining us. Oh yeah.
2: Hey. And I'm sure we have many because we are on YouTube streaming yep. live.
3: So uh the what I'm showing now is, is an uh an image from the hills. Uh, there in Alabama, and this shows the site of Moton Field, which is where they did their initial training. Uh, mm-hmm. It consists of two hangars, um, a couple of outbuildings, and then a small control tower um, on hangar number two. Now, these hangars, uh, for those who aren't familiar, they're very large structures. They are uh, put them together, and they'd be the size of a Walmart super center. A mm-hmm. um, couple of stories high, uh, one and a half stories high in on one of the hangars, two stories high on the other one. Um, very high ceilings with a lot of open ductwork because this is where they park the planes. So you have to have a lot of room there. And if you were wandering around in there, you'd actually hear your own footfalls and echoes. You know, okay. there's there's a lot of sound issues there. But so right now we're we're looking at uh, a, a view uh, from the air. Uh, showing these two hangars. Uh, the one on the far left is Hangar 1 with the control tower in the background. And the control tower is only about three stories high. Now, I could go in there and show you photographs of that, but there aren't any because wasps live there. Uh, mm-hmm. So <laughs> we don't have any any photographs there. They've actually cordoned that off. Um, so mm-hmm. Hangar 1 is where they started. And so that's where we're going to start uh, with part of this virtual tour. That's where I've got a lot of the, uh, now, this photograph I'm going to share right now.
2: But just to be clear, I'm inside Hangar One, and I'm standing facing—I'm assuming—a wall full mm-hmm. of photos of all types, the way we would at at literally if we were physically there. So, I'm, is that correct, Wendell? I'm just.
3: O- almost actually, I've got you outside of hangar one right now, oh, okay. um, because Ooh. this is, I-, I wanted to, I wanted to give you a picture because they've, uh, one of the things they've done that's kind of noteworthy is that this is a low brick building. Um, but there is a vintage Gulf oil sign next to it Ooh. on a rusted metal pole. And there's weathered benches that go along the sidewalk and well-trimmed hedges. Um, because they've, they've, They've gone to great lengths to preserve uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the vintage materials. And so this is an old Gulf oil sign. It's a circle, an orange circle, uh, with then a, a white label across it. And then in blue letters, it says Gulf. And the sign is weathered, and the pole that it is on is visibly rusted. So they're definitely giving, uh, giving visitors a feel of what it's like to step in.
2: So this might place is back, say, 1940s?
3: Uh, yeah, it would be, uh, they were in operation between 1941 and 1946, I believe. Um, and in that time, they had, they taught over 1,500 airmen. And there were many, many more people who were staff, ground crew, instructors, cooks, maintenance, you know, e- everything you'd want. Mm-hmm. So now, let's get you inside.
2: Just we so to- easily. Yeah. So if I were wearing heels, it wouldn't hurt to walk. <laughs> but you would
3: hear it. You would definitely hear it.
2: But you really would hear your football. That's, and uh, for the um, uh, viewers and listeners, this part where we have some silence to me is uh, also a part of the IRA experience because we would kind of be standing in, well, I would be standing in awe of the um, just the history of this building and what it means. And so, those silences give us a chance to kind of absorb it all.
3: Now, when you step into the hangar itself, your very first view is, as you said, there's going to be, uh, there's going to be a lot of displays. Um, and so, this one is the first display in hangar one. Um, it has a vintage desk uh, with polished wood and a, and a very old-style black phone uh, in the center of the desk. Uh, And there's a purpose for that phone. I'll get to that in a moment. But then behind there, uh, there's one of those displays that has photographs um, and writing on it. And so I'm going to zoom in here just a little bit. Mm -hmm. This display um, starts with some of the basics um ab- about uh what the tuskegee Airmen experience was all about uh this section talks about the cadets um and it talks about some of the training they got um this is divided into uh, six panels two of them are blank so i won't go into those but uh the first panel uh the printed legend on it says know your allies okay. And then it says, aviation cadets had to understand the broader context of the war, including nations involved in the worldwide conflict. Great Britain, the USSR, and the United States after Pearl Harbor, known as the Big Three, along with France and China, were the principal Allied powers fighting Germany and the other Axis powers. Throughout the war, dozens of other nations joined the Allies. Among them were Australia, Belgium, Brazil, Canada, Denmark, Greece, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Poland, South Africa, and Yugoslavia.
2: Wow. Okay.
3: Now the next panel is titled Combat Intelligence. Uh, there is a picture here that does show uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Benjamin Davis, uh, he was the leader uh, of the Tuskegee Airmen, both in stateside and when they went into the European theater.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and so, this details uh, the information about the 99th Fighter Squadron, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin O. Davis Jr. They boarded the SS Mariposa in New York on April ni- on, in April of 1943, bound for North Africa. Its first assignment was to the 12th Air Force in the Mediterranean Theater, one of 10 United States Army Air Forces in several theaters of war. Now, intelligence was more than cadet preparation; it was a matter of life and death. At Moton Field, the intelligence officer posted the on the honor board to record the combat accomplishments of Tuskegee's first fighter squadron. The 99th was also the first U.S. combat unit made up entirely of African Americans—African Americans rather—pilots, support staff, and officers. Now, below that um, is a picture um, of the Tuskegee airmen. Uh, There are six of them; uh, five of them sitting at a table. And another one is standing up and pointing to a map of the European theater. All the ones sitting the three of the room table, or the two are standing. They're all in full flight gear, including the leather uh, skull caps, which fits very tightly on the head, and then goggles going across the forehead portion um, of the skull caps. So these gentlemen are ready
2: mm-hmm. you
3: know, to get into the aircraft. Now, behind that desk and that phone, which I mentioned before, um, this is a placard, and it has four photographs of some of the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, and this is something I wish we could take part in. Um, this is a deep red placard, and, and the writing on it says, Former Cadets Speak. At Moton Field, cadets learned the importance of good intelligence briefings about the enemy, about their allies, and about the theater of war. This theoretical information grew more immediate when they heard the reports of experienced combat pilots. When they entered combat themselves, they learned that their lives could depend on good briefings. Please pick up the phone to hear these voices. For an overview and sampling of voices, you press zero. To hear individuals, press the number corresponding with their name.
2: Well, just for effect, can I hear some of the names of of the gentlemen? Sure. Let
3: me just Mm -hmm. zoom in a little bit. I'm I'm afraid the picture on that is not clear enough to get the names of the ones.
2: Okay. And we'll get names.
3: Not this time, but I do have some other ones. Okay. There's always an opportunity. Now we're going to get to one of my favorite parts here. <laughs> we get to talk about the actual planes that are in there.
2: Love because the planes. there
3: are uh, there are three planes, uh, or actually two planes and, and one uh, training um, mock-up. There we go. Now the first one, okay, the first one they used, now these uh, the planes they used were very small and not nearly as powerful as the actual warplanes. Um, the first one they used was the Sturman PT-17 biplane. These were actually used as, uh, in World War I, and they're crop dusters uh,
2: mm.
3: in, a lot of, uh, in a lot of regions. Now, it's called a biplane because it has two fixed wings on it. Um, these have it has the two fixed wings, which are held up to the fuselage of the airplane, the main body, by struts. Uh, and then it has fixed wheels. So those are rigid. They don't fold up into the body or anything. They Mm -hmm. stay down. Um, the two, the two wheels are in front of the main wings, which are over the pilots, uh, uh, the pilots opening there on the fuselage. Now this isn't round. It's actually, uh, faceted if you if you put a bunch of boards together and put them in a circle uh, and then felt all the way around it that's what that structure would feel like and it has very tight air uh, airplane fabric stretched across it um this uh the body of the plane including uh, the struts and the wheel supports is royal blue and then the wings are kind of golden yellow uh, with the u.s army corps symbol on the bottom uh, as it goes across the the bottom of the wings uh, now the engine Uh, this is I can't remember I think it's a Continental engine Um, it has it it only has seven cylinders and they are in a radial pattern which means they go around where the propeller base is like in a car you Mm -hmm. have you know you have an inline set of cylinders but in but but in this airplane the cylinders around the engine housing actually go in a big circle and they're large chunky cylinders kind of like a lowercase y because Mm -hmm. they attached all the way around and it has a single propeller And the thing that's interesting about this is that this engine only had about 200 horsepower, which is about the same as an SUV. Well, I was going to say seven, so (laughs) doesn't sound like a lot like (laughs) that. You're right. And so it's, it's, it's only about the same horsepower as an SUV. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the top speed was only about 124, 125 miles an hour,
2: Mm -hmm. which
3: a lot of sports cars can exceed.
2: Right. And how many many people could fit in the, in this particular plane was it only this
3: is a two person plane. This was designed as the primary trainer. Um, the front compartment was for the uh, the learner, the cadet,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and then the re- rear compartment was for the instructor. And they had identical controls, kind of like driver's ed, in mm-hmm. each one. <laughs> so, if, if the cadet wasn't doing so well, the uh, the instructor could take over from the rear. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, in itself, honestly, it's only about I don't think it's even as long as a stretch limo, you know, it is, it is quite small, um, yeah. very compact. And so this is what they trained in. Now they were required as part of their training to be able to fly short hops solo. And then eventually before they could graduate, they had to fa- fly cross country solo in this oh, plane.
2: In that plane.
3: Yes. In, in in that trainer plane um, so that had to, that involved a lot of stops you know and and long because they, they were running missions you know in into uh, the Mediterranean and, and Europe and it was uh, it was pretty grueling so they had to be ready for that oh yeah now the second plane that they used is actually uh, similar models are still in use today the other plane is a piper cub uh, which is um, approximately the same size as the Sturman. Um, however, this is all enclosed. doesn't have the open cockpits like the, uh, like the biplane has. Um, it's completely closed in and has one fixed wing going across the cockpit area.
0: Mm.
3: Now, this one is painted bumblebee yellow. It is, it is a very bright golden yellow um, with a single black lightning bolt. Going from, and and this has the the covered engine cowl rather than open like the biplane did. Um, And this has a long lightning bolt that starts at the uh, the front of the plane, just behind the engine, all the way to the back. And this one was used for a lot of takeoff and landing practice. Um, It's, again, approximately the same size. These were much smaller um, and much slower aircraft than they were going to be using. But they had to get their certifications here. When they got the certification here, then they moved on to Tuskegee Army Airfield, which was just down the road,
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, which was a much larger facility, um, and it was uh, it was also segregated. Mm-hmm. And so they were running into difficult conditions even during training,
2: yeah. which has a, an extra dimension to training when you your trainers might have. Issues with you,
3: no doubt about that. That is that is definitely one of the struggles. The, uh, they, they they were getting set to fight Adolf Hitler, and they still had to fight Jim Crow, mm-hmm. because Jim Crow laws were still fully in effect. You know, in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so also inside the hangar, um, of note, hang on, I'm just going to share this new view now.
2: Okay, so we've turned our gaze we into a new view.
3: Okay, now we are looking at another part of the inside of the building. Now, remember I mentioned that these were very big buildings and even, you know, two stories within. Um, one of the unique things about a hangar is a lot of times there is a separate maintenance building inside of the hangar itself about the size of a single wide trailer. Hmm. Um, and this has one of those buildings uh, that would have some of the offices inside uh, just on on one side of the building held up with uh, – with supports so the people could walk in and out under it. Um, But attached to the building and hanging off the rafters are parachutes. Uh, There is a line of four parachutes because this is also where they prepped and folded the parachutes or as they called it, rigged it. Um, And so hanging, hanging from the beams in the ceiling um, are three parachutes that, that they are easily um, 20 feet long and with another 30 feet of cord and so those are hanging down from the ceiling and attaching and attaching themselves to the sides of the building because this is where they set up Mm -hmm. um the the other materials and i remember reading about one of them and basically they use the their uh shoots as a seat cushion
2: sense and what color are these shoots oh these are white Mm -hmm. um
3: these are these are, are are basically your basic white um, think at that time they were still using silk,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, which you know, which was the phrase "hitting the silk," meaning you're jumping out.
2: Okay. Yeah. Uh, I will just say I'm not going to leave a perfectly good functioning airplane, but <laughs> for those who might want to, okay. That and obviously, was, this, this was what their job was. So
3: this this was definitely it was my policy. Um. <laughs> Now, a couple of other things – one of the other things that's interesting about Hangar One um, is that they had their own – let me find it. There we go. They had their own little cafe, okay. uh, which they called the Tea Room, and the Tea Room um, was built like a small diner. Um, this photograph I have of the Tea Room right now, there are glass panels. Wh- basically, it's one of those things where you can step in, and the glass panels will be around you, uh, so you're not going to wander around inside the display itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the counter um, we'll start with we've got a counter in the foreground and um, on that counter it, the thing that stands out the most in the center front of the counter is a glass domed dish with uh, one, two, three, five, six iced donuts <laughs> yeah. um, in mm-hmm. there, now I know this 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 museum was open sometime in the 80s I don't think we'd want to risk that mm-hmm. um, now next to that is a candy display uh, with Baby Ruth and Payday candy bars um, and let's zoom in just a little bit here and Three Musketeers. Okay. Uh, now these are all candy bars that were available during that time period and they have the uh, the, the printing on it isn't nearly uh, as colorful or complicated. They're all pretty simple. And those are in a glass case. Mm-hmm. And then uh, what looks like sticks of chewing gum. I can't make out the, the labels on these but it's sticks of chewing gum um, in a small cardboard box in between those boxes of candy. Mm -hmm. Um, then there's also a plant, uh, broadleafed plant in a, uh, in a terracotta pot on top of the candy display. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: And then the rest of this area, they've got a, you know, of course it's an old style refrigerator from, uh, from around the forties, uh, simple white with, uh, you know, one single door on it and a large fan on top of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then going over to the left, uh, there's an old style Coca-Cola machine where it's just like, uh, you know, like a chest freezer Mm -hmm. uh, and the two doors that open up from, you know, from there. And then next to that is a replica of one of the dining room tables. And it's got the old white ceramic mugs, uh, the chrome napkin holder, and it looks like one of the donut, another one of the donuts. I guess there are donuts everywhere here. Another one of the donuts um, on a small plate
2: mm-hmm.
3: on that table, uh, and one single uh, one mm-hmm. single chair beside that. And above the table, on the wall, is a war bonds poster. Oh, okay. Um, and the one thing is, it says um, "Save Freedom of Speech by War Bonds," and the picture is from an old Norman Rockwell painting. Uh, mm-hmm. that shows uh, that shows a gentleman standing up in the middle of what looks like a community meeting and he's you know he's he's probably a farmer it looks like he's wearing a canvas jacket over you know over a plaid shirt and he's got a note in his pocket it looks like those might have been the notes that he was going to take or the agenda mm-hmm. um, and so this was all about him standing up and speaking in a public meeting so
2: freedom of speech right war bonds well, that's a- phrase we can Maybe <laughs> capture today? <laughs> yeah. So this gives me some idea of just their accommodations. I mean, th- this is just their their lounge or cafe where they could go and have a bite to eat and chat and, you know, enjoy some snack and whatever.
3: That's right. Now, one of the interesting things about that is that uh, it was only accessible from the outside. There was no entrance from the hangar directly into there. Oh, um, so they actually had to go outside. Okay. Hmm, now, Hangar 2 okay. is where I get to have a lot of fun because this <laughs> has some of my favorite things uh, to talk about. And one of those is that when you, when you go into Hangar 2, um, the very first thing that, that strikes everyone is there is a life-size replica um, of a P-51 Mustang fighter jet.
2: Ah, uh, I know there's some um, the that
3: loves the p51 mustang (laughs) (laughs) and well he's he's in good company um and this is actually suspended from the ceiling pointing towards the entrance there is a lot of blue lighting a lot of blue and white lighting um that really gives the effect of flying through a deep blue sky with maybe a few patches of white clouds um, and it's right. suspended from the ceiling, and it's canted just slightly. Uh, in this view, would be slightly to the left, so it looks like it's banking or making a turn.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, now, this has been fully restored, um, and it has the you know the the standard metal, metal fuselage rather for for most of it. The nose cone is painted red, and there are four propellers. Or actually, it's two—one crossed over the other one. You know on coming through the nose cone there. Mm-hmm. Um, a single black stripe going from the top of the nose cone uh, to the windshield of the cockpit, then all the way at the back, and this is the thing that people noticed, the tail section is painted red.
2: Mm-hmm. The red tails.
3: Right, hence that name, the red tails. Um, it is, now in this in this picture, there's a little bit of foreshortening. It was about, honestly, the, the planes were about the size of a city bus, um, they were quite large, both in, uh, both in length and in width, the width their the wings are pretty much as long as the plane itself
2: mm-hmm.
3: and swept back just a little bit. Um, these P-51s, as Janine can tell you, they were devastating fighters. Okay. Um, but this display is one of my favorite because it, uh, it goes into some of the best aspects. Uh, now, Behind, let me see if I can find one of the other photos that uh, gives a little bit better picture. Because that this whole uh, this whole display is focused. You know, the the main part is this plane, mm-hmm. and behind it, there's a sky blue backdrop um, mm-hmm. which has some some clouds painted on it. But I want to make sure I get there's one that's really quite. This is a little bit better one. Uh, this is called becoming the Red Tails. Is that the, the Legend in uh, red script,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and
2: well, oh, there, there we that go. It's painted on one of the clouds,
3: right? It, well, actually, it's it's the it's painted across this cloudscape behind the plane. Wow. Now, the fun part about this is that on that cloudscape, uh, there are two planes painted. There is uh, a German Messerschmitt fighter, and pursuing it is one of the Red Tails. uh about to give that plane a very hard time uh now there is a single quote uh on a placard on that on that sky blue backdrop with uh showing a bit of a dogfight there and this says the the quote says this is your opportunity you will stay with those bombers and that was a quote from uh lieutenant colonel davis Mm
2: -hmm. who
3: was the leader of that fighter group okay um and so this um as you know, as we talked about a little bit, uh, this was their mission, was to protect those bombers. And they did an exceptional job of protecting those bombers. Now, next to that display...
2: So we move away from that first plane?
3: Um, to- right, just just beside the plane. There's a lot of things going on, actually, right in the vicinity of the plane.
2: Oh, okay. Um,
3: and so next to it is a small... Um, it's sort of like a diorama. It, it it looks like a giant, you know, a large model. Mm-hmm. Um, say it's about three and a half feet by two feet wide, and it has small replicas of those P fifty one Mustangs. And it's all one color. They're all kind of charcoal gray.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and this is a replica of one of the forward air bases uh, where they would camp out and and launch these uh, these escort missions from. Mm-hmm. Um, so it shows a couple uh, a couple of P fifty one replicas. Uh, maybe about, I'd say, eight inches long each. And then a couple of tents uh, where they would live and eat. And looks like uh, some supplies, some gas cans, um, a Jeep. And so this is basically showing the conditions they worked in when they were in the theater.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Pretty, pretty sparse, pretty meager. Right. But, I mean, it it is the theater, War Theater, so it's not going to be anything more than that.
3: And they were definitely in the thick of it.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: There we go. Okay. Now, one of the displays uh, within that area around the plane um, also goes, uh, goes deeply into what they called the double V, uh, which means they were fighting for victory at home and abroad. Mm-hmm. As we said, they, they, weren't, you know, they were facing two enemies.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, so there's a quote here. Um, the, the photographs are one photograph on the far left. Uh, shows the airmen consulting a map um, in front of, that looks like a, that's one of the bombers behind them. Um, and there are four of them. And of course, all these photos are in black and white.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but uh, the, the caption says, Tuskegee Army Airfield was designated as an African-American base within the Army Air Forces. When the Tuskegee Airmen were stationed at bases with white units, they had segregated housing, eating, and recreational facilities. And in many instances, the facilities they had at different bases were actually worse conditions than the German prisoners of war had. Oh. And a quote here.
2: I'm sorry. I was going to say, so we're fighting for freedom, um, but we're not really free. So,
3: right. That is that's that absolutely true. Um, one of the quotes here on, uh, next to the photograph says, the world will come to an end if we let these Negro officers have this dance with white feel- females in attendance. So we were secretly herded on a train with the windows blacked out. And that is a quote from Master Sergeant Shade Lee. He was communications chief and inspector. Um, this, this is what they had to deal with. You know, not, not just the presence of, of Jim Crow, but active enforcement of Jim Crow laws and segregation,
2: While they're
3: in the theater. Right. When when a lot of them returned, um, they attempted to get into, and this was supposed to be an officer's club that was going to be built for them. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: Uh, Those funds went somewhere else, so they tried to enter the white officer's club. They were officers. They were war heroes. And they were not allowed to do that. They staged a protest, and they were court-martialed because of it.
2: Oh, court-martialed
3: court-martialed, over a hundred of them. Uh, now, most of those charges were dropped. There were, I think, three of them um, who had remaining charges. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, let's see, just the last decade, those charges were dropped and all the records were expunged.
2: Okay, so we're talking 60, 70 years later.
3: Exactly. and And once again, justice delayed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, the photograph from uh, on the right-hand side shows one of uh, one of the communication. It shows two t- communications technicians, actually, mm-hmm. um, in front of a bank of radios. And of course, these are their older radios, so lots of plugs uh, and and you know lots of wires coming out of the faces of it. They're both wearing uh, pretty pretty small headphones, and the one in, in the foreground definitely looks like he's transcribing.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a lot to absorb. Um, in the context of the war that they fought were considered heroes abroad and came home to segregation, protested not being able to get into a, an officers' club when they were officers and took well over fifty years to have records expunged and this is a part of our history that I didn't get in my learning of history. Um, And maybe some folks out listening and watching did, but you know, this is, this is history. This is American history too.
3: Absolutely. And one thing, um, one thing I'd like to bring up now there is, there's a display on the wall, uh, that shows some of the airmen and it shows just some of the basics, Mm -hmm. um, about this. For example, uh, the Tuskegee airmen flew over 1500 missions, Mm -hmm. uh, 72 pilots were shot down. Those are enemy pilots (laughs)
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Uh, or 72 uh, airmen rather shot down 112 enemy aircraft. Mm -hmm. 66 um, of the Tuskegee airmen were killed in action. Mm -hmm. 32 were taken as prisoners. And even today, 13 of them are still listed as missing in action. Now this team, and this is a, this is a pretty, uh, pretty interesting list here. I'm just going to go over, there is a display Um, that I don't have any static photos of, uh, but I was able to catch a couple of uh, grainy clips on YouTube. Um, The medals uh, that the Tuskegee Airmen earned uh, during the war, one Legion of Merit, one Silver Star, two Soldiers' Medals, 59 Purple Heart Medals. So 59 of them were wounded in combat. 95 Distinguished Flying Crosses. 14 bronze stars for valor, 774 air medals with clusters, and five distinguished unit unit citations. Mm -hmm. Now, the best part about that to me is that in 2005, the airmen were collectively awarded a congressional gold medal. Mm -hmm. Now, that's, that's a pretty important honor because the very first one actually went to
2: George Washington. Oh, okay. So, that puts that into context. Yeah,
3: and actually, I found a photo of that because it was custom.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so our guests are able to see these, that photo. They will as soon as I share it.
3: <laughs> there we go. Now, this is a photo of the medal that was that was awarded to the Tuskegee Airmen en masse. It's in the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is gold, of course. And the legend at the top says Tuskegee Airmen. And it shows three of the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, they're kind of, they're, they're in profile and they're overlapping each other. One, but they're, you know, so you can you can mm-hmm. still make out all the fe- features. Uh, the one in the very background is an officer. He's wearing an officer's cap. Um, it's got the rigid bill and then the peaked front that, that is up a little higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one is a maintenance man. Um, he's got one of the small ball caps with the, with the bill flipped up a little bit. And mm-hmm. then the one in the foreground is one of the pilots. And he is wearing that pilot skull cap uh, with the goggles and the spaces for the headphones that, that would fit in under the cap. Uh, on either side of him. on the left-hand side, it says 1941. On the right-hand side, it says 1949, mm-hmm. uh, which the reason they use 1949 is because in ni- until 1948, uh, the, the military was still segregated.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And it wasn't until an executive order in 1948, which then took place. Took effect in 1929 when they were able to integrate with other units
2: so just for perspective we integrated baseball before we integrated the military that's correct (laughs) although as you know uh,
3: black people have been part of the united states military since the revolution
2: yeah yeah yeah.
3: you know in every single conflict and um and yet this is when they, they they were finally um Recognized in this fashion, and even then, still you know, strong, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there any part of the display window that shares the the names? And I know, I think you said there's fifteen hundred or a a lot, but just I'm just curious if we could hear some names.
3: I can definitely, even though the the uh, the museum itself doesn't, you know, doesn't have. Uh, clear enough pictures of that, but I can find them thanks to Google.
2: Mm -hmm. This is, uh, again, one of the benefits of touring this museum virtually with Ira. that if I were on site or virtual as we are today, you ask the agent for something like that, and you get an opportunity to have the agent um, Google it um, to add to the experience of touring the museum.
0: I'm just gonna pop in Stephanie and Wendell to ask you if any of these gentlemen are still alive, and I wonder if there are any women that actually worked mm-hmm. at uh, at the the. Oh, there were. Area? Yeah,
3: there were. There were definitely women who who, who worked at um, at Moton Field, um, and as some of them even were uh, gate guards, uh, mm-hmm. some of them were uh, trainers on on how to fold and pack the
2: parachutes because that had to be an art. Like folding a map in the '60s, you know the big the big maps right. that we dealing with <laughs> pre Google Map, Apple Map. Yeah, um, and I don't recall if there are any alive at this point. Um, I think one passed away here locally fairly recently, maybe within the last few years, um, but I don't I don't know.
0: I actually had the honor of meeting that gentleman at an air show, actually. Yeah. And I wish I could remember his name. It's not coming to me, but, yeah. um, but I, I do recall meeting him at an air show in 2007.
2: When right. We refer to them as the Tuskegee Airmen, And again, knowing that there are many of them, I always, um, since I've been interested in this, have wondered, well, what are their names? And um, so just a, a few names would be good to know.
3: Okay, I did have a few names here uh, pulled from a list on the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm.
1: Um lot of high-end interest. I had to look this up now, um, and I found out that uh, it says that the uh, Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated said that they don't. There's no way to tell how many of them are still alive, but they can say that as of may of 2019 there was still 12 of the 355 single engine pilots still alive Ooh.
2: and that's 2019
1: oh, wow. thank you ryan wow yeah, the, i mean believe
3: me the, like i said this is a rabbit hole i, I am glad to go down uh, mm-hmm. because there are so many things uh, so many things that most people just don't know about
2: mm-hmm.
3: that the um one of the things, and, and I did find these names, and so I'll I'll go down that rabbit hole in a minute with you. But uh, mm-hmm. first of all, uh, the biggest name they talk about is Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Davis Jr.,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, who was the leader. Um, he was the son of an Army general, and he was a graduate of West Point. He was a member of the first class of cadets to earn their wings. Um, so that's where he got his flight training. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of his history, uh, because uh, because of his... Uh, qualifications, he was selected to le- lead the 99th Pursuit Squadron, which was the very first all-black unit. Then he led the 332nd Fighter Group in Europe. Now this is where the Red Tails got their legend. Yes. Um, one of the things, and I'm going to go off book here, but one, one of the things is that um, the the legend of the Red Tails is that in over 200 missions, they never lost a bomber. Now it's not quite true. Not quite true. Five did not make it out of 205 missions.
2: Mm.
3: No other escort group ever came even close to that number. Wow. And the Red Tails were known as ferocious fighters who flew incredibly tight formations. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, their numbers for downing enemy planes were actually slightly lower uh, than you know than other escort groups because enemy planes the Germans would not want to engage them.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> they they didn't want to take that chance because they knew that if you took on the red tails you probably weren't going home right. and they avoided those those bombers that were protected so, so their numbers were staggering when it came to their success yeah.
2: um that's that's amazing uh, for people who were thought to not have the intellect to do this and finally given an opportunity they excelled um their courage and bravery is exemplary.
3: So it does finish up about, um, about Colonel Davis that after the war, he continued his military career in the newly independent and integrated U.S. Air Force. Finally, I have some relevance here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of and Air Force you know, people in my family, too.
3: <laughs> that's right. Air Force vet myself here. It's, it's, um, now, he achieved the rank of lieutenant general,
2: mm.
3: and he was still a key leader in the Korean and Vietnam conflicts. Okay. Then the next photo they have is of a gentleman named Linkwood Williams, uh, a civilian flight instructor at Tuskegee Army Field in World War II. And it shows him in front of one of the trainer planes. He's in full pilot gear, uh, but he's definitely standing in, in, front of the, in, one, in front of the Sturman biplanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, next name that they note is Lieutenant Lee Archer. Mm-hmm. He was a native of New York City. Uh, Became one of the most proficient pilots in the 332nd, being highly regarded for his skill, aggressiveness, and gallantry in air combat. (laughs) And then finally, um, Charles Hall, he was from Brazil, Indiana. One of the things that the airmen came from all over the country.
2: Yes. Yes.
3: Um, he downed an FW-190 while on an escort mission in on July 21st, 1943. This marked the first air victory for the United States by a black airman in the, U- in the European theater.
2: Mm.
3: Now, one of the things that is quite unusual about uh, their victories in the theater, and let me just find the right note here, is that two of them managed to down... Or not down to sink a German destroyer, a ship oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. from the air, um, strafing, strafing it with uh, fifty caliber machine guns, um, and that was done in a harbor in Italy.
2: Okay. So, so from from the sound of it, that's not something that was done often and easily done. Oh, no. <laughs> at all. Yeah.
3: No, it's, it's just it's just one more accomplishment. Yeah, uh, you know that that they had, and um again, there. Let me see. There's one more quote that I found that yes, uh, okay, and this is uh, this is from one of the pilots. Um, the quote is: "They said we didn't have the intelligence, the demeanor, the courage to be combat pilots. They learned different. All we needed was a chance and training." Mm -hmm. Um, and that person was Charles McGee. He was a pilot, and that quote was from 2005. Mm
2: -hmm. Well said, Mr. McGee.
3: That is one thing is that, you know, throughout all of this, um, you know, they're they're bearing um, in in the theater of war, and then they're bearing coming back and fighting Jim Crow. Um, They still maintain their dignity and their decorum. Mm
2: -hmm. Yes.
3: You know, being, let's face it, being better than the people they were fighting
2: on mm-hmm. both sides of the ocean. <laughs> the uh, again the you know the experience of going through this with you, window it it just it's breathtaking um, to absorb all of the information. Um, my imagination is um, just all over the place with the descriptions that you've provided. Um, and also just absorbing just the, the information uh, on their treatment. And, um, you know, a good takeaway, though, from it is with the African American Museum promotion, so many of us uh, through this experience and other experiences individuals will have on their own can learn and hopefully help affect change. Um, positive change, especially in these times where we're, we're challenged on all sides by a myriad of things. And so I know this is scratching the surface of their experience. Um, as we talked about offline, the experience that happened to them aside from their military heroism, that's a, that could be a whole other six shows in its own.
3: oh yes that that would you know like so we could we could easily um i know we're you know we're we're pressed for time here um just for our own limitations but easily um Mm -hmm. we could do three hours and and as i said this is one of my favorite subjects just because um not only because i have that tentative connection through the u.s air force because these were you know these were our forefathers in Mm -hmm. you know uh in that branch but um that just how they performed under those adverse conditions mm-hmm. and how they didn't just rise to the challenge. They met it and exceeded all those expectations and outperformed their contemporaries. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. the, the all, and by the way, all, all the tests, everything they went through were exactly the same as, as, you know, as the white airmen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing yeah, was changed.
2: Yeah, their tests weren't any different, and yet they excelled. And uh, and is... then it's hard to excel when people are expecting you not to excel.
0: Sure. So I,
2: I don't imagine they got a lot of encouragement. That's my imagination. That's not documented anywhere. But I can't imagine they did, and yet they excelled. The, Actually,
3: it is documented. Okay. Because they um the. That, uh, that court martial that I mentioned.
2: Right.
3: Um, the colonel in charge of, of that base was openly mm-hmm. racist and segregationist. Uh, and part of the reason that came about is that they were supposed to have their own officers' club and he diverted the funds somewhere else.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, don't want to honor you. No, yeah. And uh, so much more to go. Uh, oh, that'll yes. be the third one yes. of the six we have planned. And, uh, I'm just, I'm having a great time with
0: it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. You are a wonderful host. We appreciate you being on board with us. Whoops. Get my microphone in place there. And I want to thank Ryan Bishop, our behind the scenes guy. Thanks. Thank you,
2: Ryan.
1: No, thank you, everybody. (laughs) I really do enjoy these uh, and getting to experience just all the history and all the, just the amazing events that came through it. Love museums. Just oh, yeah. absolutely do. So
0: <laughs> I'm Thank still picturing live stream as well too. Absolutely. And I am still picturing the wonderful uh, you know, verbal pictures that when Wendell painted yes. of some of those The banking. Oh, the banking I in the love it. I was vibrant. Oh. I was so excited. Yes. I'm like, yeah, yes. yeah.
1: Couldn't have picked a better agent for this one too. You know, you I got just it. It, you got it, like it. Really, yeah. you just you couldn't have picked a better agent.
0: I got it. So, yes. Yeah, so, hopefully, everybody will be able to join us. Now, this particular episode will also be up on the podcast feed very soon, and it will be here on YouTube. Ryan is going to create a playlist for our afternoons at the museum. And so you can catch, yeah, you can catch all of those on a YouTube playlist. Wonderful. Thank you all. If you'd like more information about IRA, the visual interpreting service, you can go to www.ira.io. And that will tell you all about who we are, what we do, and how we do it with our wonderfully trained agents. And, Who we serve, and it's not just blind and low vision people. If you need a little bit of help accessing things, uh, you saw what Wendell was able to do. Maybe you're not totally blind, maybe you're not legally blind yet, but you'd like a little bit of extra support in accessing things on the computer, et cetera. You saw what Wendell can do. We've got many other agents that do an excellent job at this. Mm. Thank you so much. We will see you on the 25th of September. This has been Janine Stanley for Afternoon at the Museum with Ira.